The scripture this morning comes out of Genesis, the 17th chapter, the first two verses, and then verses 15 to 22. I love this story. When Abram was 99 years old, I just need to let that settle for a minute. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nation. Kings of people shall come to her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. God said, No, but your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Holy wisdom, holy word. It was in 1994 when I first met the man who would have more to do with my ministerial foundation than almost anyone. It was in the United Methodist course of study at the Claremont School of Theology, and he was teaching the beginning class on theology. Six years later, he sat in the office of the acting president of that same seminary, this time to offer an invitation, at least to be a part of that invitation, to attend the seminary as a graduate student something I could have never dreamt possible before that day. Yet he was there and offered a church to serve, small but a little bit complex. (laughs) A place to live and a supportive atmosphere. And he would serve as my district superintendent the whole time I was in Los Angeles. He even led a covenant group of young clergy. Why I was there, I will never know, because I certainly wasn't young, even then. But we shared much together in that group, in a depth that I have seldom seen. I remember one day he backed me into a closet at that church at Westchester, Lottiehara United Methodist Church, and asked if I might consider serving as an associate pastor eight miles up the road, a position that would become Minister of Family Life and Teaching at Santa Monica First United Methodist Church. And it was at that church where we shared a concert together where we raised tens of thousands of dollars for Hurricane Katrina and watched in awe as Jackson Brown and Katie Lang sang so that we could all be the hope. As my parents began to age, I turned again to him, and he insisted me in incredible ways in the items needed 
to be put forth to move back here to the Pacific Northwest. I remember standing out in front of the church in Santa Monica and joking about the possibility of him becoming a bishop. And it wasn't a joke. We desperately needed him, desperately needed him to serve in that way. And yet here we are. He has become the bishop. And so others clearly recognize that need as well and the gifts of this humble man. And so he serves. Reverend Dr. Grant Huggy is one of the most respected bishops in the connection. He would never admit that, but I know it to be true. It's not just knowledge or skills and preachings. It's something much deeper than that. For the past two weeks, you've heard me talk about leadership through the Jesus lens, Jesus Revisited of the old leadership pyramid where the leader is on the top, kind of forcing others to follow. And yet we find that no longer should work in the church. It is when the pyramid is inverted that true Christian leadership unfolds and works. It is what Jesus said, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, and the true leader will become servant of all. There is no more accurate description than that for a bishop. He truly sees his role as servant, and particularly servant of all. It is a deeply humbling privilege to welcome Reverend Dr. Grant Huggy, a resident bishop of the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference, soon to expand. It's wonderful to be able to share worship with a man I so deeply admire and respect, and I will tell you, He is on the road constantly and literally carved out time in this very busy schedule to be with us on this 50th 50th anniversary, 50th celebration grant. Welcome. We look forward to hearing the good word this morning. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you all. I um, am very humbled uh, to be part of this celebration. And knowing Brad all those years, we were a lot younger back then. Um, like to put pictures up when we're younger. Um, I try to start with humor, um, and nowadays uh, most of the humor I find I can't repeat in church. Uh, <laughs> so I have to rely on old ones like this one. Uh, it's a story of a pastor who was assigned to a new church, and he really wanted to make a good first impression. So he worked literally hours on his sermon. I mean, he poured over it. He uh, did multiple drafts. He threw out old sermons. Finally, he crafted what he thought was a wonderful sermon for his first Sunday. Comes the big day. He delivers it. He thinks he's nailed it. He thinks he really did a great job. And in the receiving line afterwards, the people are so appreciative of him, so complimentary of his sermon. And he comes across this little bald-headed old man in the receiving line who shakes his hand and says, Thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend, but you know, it was a little confusing and you lost me at various points. Well, it's his first constructive criticism, so he thanked the man profusely and said, You come back next week. I'm going to work hard on this. I'll have a better sermon for you next week. Goes on to the next 25 people, and there in line again is that little bald-headed old man. Shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was a little too long, and I tuned out the second half of it. (laughs) 
Well, he said, you know, I really appreciate this um, help. Come back next week, I'll have a better sermon. Moves on quickly to the next person. Goes to the entire line, and wouldn't you know it, at the end of the line is that little bald-headed old man again. Shakes his hand and says, thank you very much for the sermon, Reverend. But you know, it was really boring, and I fell asleep through most of it. (laughs) Now, the new pastor's mad. He thinks to himself, who is this guy insults me three times? And he quickly goes and finds the lay leader, pulls him aside and says, who is that little bald-headed old man? And the lay leader is very apologetic. He says, oh, Reverend, don't mind him. He's a little bit off. He just goes around repeating what he hears other people saying. Uh, So today, if we have a receiving line, you do not have to go back in line repeated times. Just tell me all at once what the criticism was, and we'll move on from there. Anniversaries are wonderful because it's a threefold time dimension. We have a past of which we celebrate, and we really thank the charter members who are here today. Your work, your vision enables us to be here today. It has a present in which we are all celebrating today, and it has a future, that which we look to for a new day. I want to remind you that the one constant through the past, present, and future is God's grace. God's grace has allowed us to carry on our ministry here. Without that grace, that love of God, of which none of us deserve it, by the way, we would not be here today. I I, I once talked with a Japanese-American second generation, we call them Nisei woman, who reflected upon her father, first-generation immigrant to this country. He was a farmer in the California countryside, and every Sunday he would gather up the whole family before dawn, jam them into an old Ford, and drive two and a half hours to the closest Christian Japanese-American church. They would arrive in time for worship, be celebrating the joy of their lives, Then they would have a potluck lunch, do Bible study, and in the afternoon they would carry on the business of the church and socialize with each other. She said in late afternoon they would pile up all the family and head the two and a half hours home. Where they got there, they would just get ready for bed because they were farmers and they had to get up before dawn the next morning. Can you imagine a five-hour round trip just to go to church on Sunday. They did that every week without fail. She recalls with a gleam in her eye, Papa loved the church. He would do anything for it. For he felt that it was God who had given him all the riches of this land and especially the six children that he had. That's an example of God's grace in history, folks. The fact that this first-generation immigrant was so loyal to the Christian church. He wanted to give back to God what he had received. This is not an atypical story. I am sure that the charter members 
have those saints that you are saints actually in our midst, but you remember those saints who gave everything in order for us to be here today. I think it's also interesting that this immigrant felt God's blessing in offspring, the gift of new generations that would take over. Each succeeding generation is necessary to carry on the life of the church. Starting from very humble beginnings, this church has been blessed with all of those who come, came after. We have reached a point of beauty. Look at this sanctuary. Look at all the resources we have around us. Beautiful organ, a beautiful place to worship. And that brings us clearly to the present. We now enjoy this church and all that you have here. This campus is beautiful. Coming through off of uh, the freeway, it was like um, leaving the city and coming into a countryside. And then here you are as a place of beauty. But we do not celebrate your material resources today. Any anniversary who only celebrated the campus or what we have in resourcing would be devoid of true faith. God is not about material things, but about heart and soul. Let me give you a personal example. My dad was the oldest son of the family, and he lost his father when he was 15 years old. So he had to take over the family business and really feed the family. He was thrust into this role. They had a gas station in Santa Maria, California, and he ran that station, 15 years old. To his credit, he graduated high school. He went to school in the morning, then he would run the station in the evenings, afternoons and evenings. But college was denied him because of this obligation. Even though he had the brains to do it, he had to take care of his family. Consequently, my dad had this psychology that he really wanted to make a huge financial windfall. Not for himself, but for his family. He was always self-employed as we were growing up, trying new businesses in order to do this, to accomplish this. Not for himself, but for us. Unfortunately, that huge financial killing eluded him. We weren't poor. There's always food on the table and a roof over our heads, but we were not rich at all, by all means. I later understood why we, he never became rich. Uh, he had an auto wrecking yard um, when I was young, uh, dismantling yard, and um, I would work there sometimes during the summer. And uh, a guy would come in with a small part that he had found in the yard, and he'd say, well, how much for this? And my dad would look at it and say, ah, you know, it's so small. Go ahead and take it. <laughs> he gave away, I think, more than he actually took in. And that was because he was so generous about things. And I realized he wasn't a businessman. But what better role modeling could a child ask for than that? As an adult, I got to drive my dad to a family funeral, and it was one of the best times I had ever had with anybody in my life. It was a, about a four-hour trip, and um, we talked about everything. 
He then confided in me that he had let his family down by not striking it rich, that he had failed to provide for us the way he wanted to do. I was so humbled by this confession that I told him, no, Dad, you know, you were the best parent anybody could have ever asked for. You see, I lost my mom when I was 14, and my dad really rallied us. He really enabled us to get through that tough moment. He then said something that I will never forget. He said, through the years, he's come to realize that making it rich was not that important to him. That what he really valued in his older age was that his kids, my sister and I, came out straight and true. And in his mind, we had done that. And after all these years, he was at peace with himself. As you can imagine, I struggled very mightily not to break down right in front of him. It was so touching to me, this confession. But I have to admit that after his death, which was about seven years ago, I have wept openly for the love that he displayed for us. I know you parents want to give your children everything. You want to give them not only your love, but your material resources. That's not what children really want, at least not faithful children. What I wanted from my dad, I got back in abundance. His care, his love, his unconditional acceptance of of me and my sister. No matter what we did, he loved us. And in return, I want to give back to him what he wanted from us, and that is to be as good a person as we possibly could be, to give him what he so wanted, and that is to be the best person I could be, the kind of person that he was proud to have a hand in creating. Isn't that the essence of grace? That God loves us so much. God gives us everything, absolutely everything. And we in return want to give back to God what God wants. And that simply is love in return. But most of all, love for neighbor. Love for the other. You see, the New Testament of definition of love has absolutely nothing to do with any kind of romantic feeling whatsoever. But it means to be there for the other. To be there for others. Especially the lost, the lonely, the forgotten, the poor. As you look at your present mission, are you fulfilling that purpose? Are you having the vision to go out to do this to this community surrounding you, to the world at large. I travel all over around, as Brad had said, and I'm struck by how many churches don't have a vision for that future. In fact, they're rather depressed about it. They tell me, where are our children? Where are our young people? Where are our young families going to come from? And quite frankly, they're worried. They have doubts about their future. The average age of a United Methodist layperson is 58 years old. We're a graying church. 
And there are grave doubts about whether we have a future or not, which is why the gift of children is such a wonderful one. There's an old story again about a young couple who was hopelessly in love. They were so in love that they could hardly see straight. And they're about to be married, but, and so the fiancé says to her, to her bri- uh, husband-to-be, you know, my mother really wants to know, will you love me forever? And he responds, of course, I will adore you. I'll cherish you for always. But she presses him a little bit and says, will you love me even when I'm old and gray? And he responds immediately, of course I will love you always. And then he stops to think about it for a moment. (laughs) And then, kind of irritated, she says, well, of which he responds, you're not going to look like your mother when you're her age, are you? Sure glad my mother-in-law is 1,500 miles away from here so she didn't hear that joke. But the illustration reminds us that even the most hopelessly in love have doubts. And it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have doubts about faith, folks. Doubts are important to your faith because doubts make us strive to get clarity, make us strive to be more faithful. And most important of all, doubts enable faith to counter it. Faith is the great counter to doubt. And I pray that those doubts that you have will be addressed right here in this church. Remember, faith's response to doubt is never, never, Underestimate the power of God. For if we believe in the God of the Bible, we believe that that God has the power to break into history at any moment and declare to all that can hear, Behold, I make all things new. God has the power to make things new. God has the power to make things over again. God has the power to make things pregnant. And today's scripture passage is the perfect example. Abraham and Sarah are at the late stages of their life. He's 99. She's 90. All hope of fulfilling the covenant promised by God is done. They're barren. And they will remain barren all of their days. And then God comes to them in this advanced age and says, No, no, you will have a child. Surely. This is a kind of divine joke. And yet, God intervenes and makes Sarah pregnant. So much so, in a joking way, that they named the child Isaac, which means the one who laughs. (laughs) Because a miracle has happened. Folks, in this one act, God breaks all stereotypes and myths that culture breeds. God makes Sarah pregnant, pregnant with new life, pregnant, the ability to conceive, pregnant, the ability to create anew. Now, I'm not recommending that you all run out and get pregnant, although remember, 
It will increase your Sunday school attendance for those of you who are able. But what I am saying is that the church needs to become pregnant. This church needs to be pregnant with new visions, new hopes, new dreams. This church needs to become pregnant in reaching out to whole new peoples, especially young people who do not need or think they need the church or the faith. This church needs to be pregnant with new programs, new outreaches to bring that next generation to a greater faith of which they desperately need. But keep in mind the tremendous amount of work that comes with pregnancy. God gives life, but it's up to us to bring that life into the world. Our job begins the moment after conception. If there is to be new life in the church, that's on us right now. It's on all of us to bring that life to fruition. As you move into the next 50 years of your church's life, I have no doubt that God will bring pregnancy. I have no doubt that newness and innovation will arise. All you need is this faith. Faith in the power of God. Faith in light of God's grace. Faith in God's ability to create anew. Just remember that it is only through this grace that we will become pregnant. It is only through grace that new life will come. And God constantly brings this grace to each and every one of us. Throughout all of history and the future, we can bank upon receiving it. Let me close with this. The late Mary Martin, in the story of her life, recalls that before each performance, she would wait back in the backstage area and then peek out behind the curtain to watch the audience as they came to sit down. And then quite arbitrarily and to herself, she would pick somebody out in the audience and say, I love you. And then she'd pick another person out and say, I love you. And then a third, I love you. And then on cue, she would go out into the stage and she would sing and she would dance as an act of love. Isn't that what God does for us? In our devotional solitude, in the church's worship, God says to us, I love you, and I love you, and I love you. And then on cue, we go out into the world And we say to the sick, the poor, the lost, and the lonely, I love you, and I love you. And in this way, we put back into the world, through action, the love that God gives to us. It's a love that God so demands, but a love that God so deserves. As you move into these next 50 years, may this love of God be here now and forever. Amen.